morning, friends. We are looking at Acts chapter 18 this morning. If you'd turn there with me, that's page 927 in the Pew Bible. We're going to look at Acts 18, verse 23, through chapter 19, verse 7 today. Uh, Let me pray for us before we read God's word. Lord Jesus, indeed, we have no other king, and to you all glory belongs. So as we come now to your word, Lord Jesus, would you, by your spirit, instruct us and teach us, and Lord, we pray that you would renew us in your grace. Acts 18, verse 23. After spending some time there, Paul departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Well, this Sunday, as Matt mentioned earlier, is traditionally known as Pentecost Sunday. Uh, It's the Sunday when we remember what Jesus did on the day of Pentecost 2,000 years ago when he gave the gift of the Spirit to the church. Uh, It's hard for us today to imagine how much of of a launch forward, how much of a new day that that was in the history of redemption. And it's hard for us to remember how incredible it is to live this side of what Jesus did at Pentecost. Um, and as we've been marching through the book of Acts this summer, lo and behold, we come to a passage that's kind of all about the Holy Spirit. Um, I remember the first time I actually saw a mobile phone. Uh, it was actually a car phone. Anybody remember those? Yeah. It was gray and plastic and about the size of a small brick. 
And it was wonderful. You could flip open the little receiver, and there were nine plastic buttons that actually lit up when you pushed them. And you could pull out this thin black antenna, and you could get reception about mm, 50% of the time. And we thought that it was awesome. But of course today we live in a whole new age, don't we? The age of the smartphone, an age when we can call and text and message, when we can watch movies and make movies right in the palm of our hand, where we can be interrupted and distracted pretty much anytime, anyplace, anywhere, right? Compared to my parents' 1990s car phone, it's like we live in a whole new age. But imagine what it would be like if you were having lunch with a friend And suddenly you hear not the gentle or clever ring of an iPhone, but some kind of obnoxious buzzing, like an alarm clock meets an old-school Atari game. And out of your friend's purse comes not that sleek, shiny wonder of technology we've all come to expect, but a gray hunk of plastic the size of a small shoe with an extendable antenna and a flip-open receiver. And at first, you might think that your friend's trying to be a bit ironic, maybe, trying to make a statement. Ah, good one, you think. Way to stick it to the man. But then she starts yelling into the receiver. Can you speak up? I think I'm getting some bad coverage. And suddenly you realize that, no, that really is her cell phone. Appalled that your friend is stuck in a technological time warp from the 1990s, you resolve to get her up to date. It is time for her to enter the new age, and promptly you march her off to the Apple Store on Broadway, or something like that, depending on your brand of choice. What we have in our passage this morning are actually two related episodes of people who need need to be brought up to date, as it were. Not in terms of technology, of course, but in terms of God's plan of salvation. They need to be brought up to date in terms of the history of redemption. They need to know where they live in light of what God's doing in the world. You see, what Luke has been trying to show us in Acts, as we've been following his story these many weeks, is that with Jesus Christ, something new has been launched upon the world. The very inbreaking of the kingdom of God. He's been trying to show us that, that the great quantum leap forward has happened. And that we all each and every one of us need to get with the times. More to the point, what Luke's going to show us here in our text is that the fullness of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, this new thing, this inauguration of the kingdom, is something that even the most intelligent have to learn and something that even the most religious have to receive. That's what we're going to consider this morning. So first, this new thing that's broken into the world in Jesus is something that even the most intelligent have to learn. We see this in verses 23 through 28. In verse 23, Paul launches out on his so-called third missionary journey. And the focus of this third and last sort of major missionary journey in Acts that stretches from this point in chapter 18 all the way through the end of chapter 20 is the great ancient city of Ephesus. Now we're going to look at the city of Ephesus in a little more detail next week. But for now, Luke is concerned to introduce us to a man named Apollos. 
in verse 24. And as you read the description of Apollos in verses 24 and 25, you know, you have to admit that this guy is exactly the kind of guy that you want on your team. I mean, if we're picking spiritual all-star teams, if we're ready to go sort of charge a new work for the kingdom, you know, this guy's definitely going to go one or two. You're picking him first, maybe second. This is the guy you want. I mean, look at a little closer at Luke's description. Verse 24, we're told that he's a native of Alexandria, Egypt. This was one of the most learned cities in the ancient world. Second, probably only to Athens in reputation. Alexandria had one of the largest and most renowned libraries in the world at the time and was a seedbed for scholars and for deep thinking. The Jewish philosopher Philo, if that name rings any bells for you, is from Alexandria. And in the coming years, the great Christian thinkers Clement and Origen would also rise up from this same city. So that's Apollos' hometown. And it seems, as Luke gives us this description, that he embodied the best aspects of his native soil. For on the one hand, Luke tells us that he was an eloquent man. In other words, he he knew how to hold an audience captive. He could weave a spell with his words. But he wasn't just some shallow rhetorician. No, Luke says he was also competent in the scriptures. He had depth. He had substance. Actually, a better translation of that phrase would be powerful or mighty in the scriptures. This is what Charles Spurgeon once said of John Bunyan. Spurgeon wrote, If you read anything of Bunyan, you will see that it is almost like the reading of the Bible itself. Bunyan had read it till his very soul was saturated with scripture. And though his writings are charmingly full of poetry, yet he cannot give us his Pilgrim's Progress, that sweetest of all prose poems, without continually making us feel and say why this man is a living Bible. Prick him anywhere. His blood is bibline. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. I was Spurgeon talking about John Bunyan. One wonders whether Luke would have said the same thing about Apollos, this young man from Alexandria. And notice while we're thinking about it, the rare combination of these first two traits. On the one hand, Apollos is eloquent. He's well-read. He's rhetorically fluid. He's a man of his age. And on the other hand, he's richly steeped in the Bible. You know, for some reason today, we think that those two things can't go together, strangely. And yet here was Apollos, able to do both. And the next two things that Luke tells us about Apollos also form a rare combination. Look at verse 25. We're we're told first that Apollos had been instructed in the way of the Lord and that he spoke and taught accurately about Jesus. So Apollos was this sharp theological thinker. He cared about doctrine. He was careful and precise in his language. But... This wasn't just some dry, dusty head knowledge. No, because the second thing we're told in this verse is that he was fervent in spirit. There was passion in Apollos. He didn't just talk about the things of God. He felt them deeply in his soul. They moved his very being. The great 20th century preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones used to describe real biblical preaching as logic on fire. I think that's the coolest thing almost anyone has ever said. And that was Apollo's logic on fire. 
But then Luke adds one more detail. Up to this point, you'd think that Apollos is like the early church's MVP, right? He's the one who's going to bring the house down. He's smart. He's talented. He's passionate. He's even from a really cool city. Come on, we love that today, right? He's got like 4 million followers on Twitter, and all the Christian book publishers are trying to get him to sign contracts. He is the rising star that nobody can touch. But then Luke adds one more detail at the end of verse 25. He knew only the baptism of John. Somehow, some way, when Apollos became a Christian in Alexandria, or wherever he became a Christian, he hadn't learned the clear teaching of Jesus post-resurrection that believers are now to be baptized in his name, in Jesus' name. Apollos somehow had only heard about John's baptism. And Luke tells us that Apollos got nearly everything else about Jesus right. That seems to be what Luke is saying in verse 25, except this one pretty important thing. Now, I think it's most likely the case that Luke wants us to see Apollos as a genuine believer in Jesus. Many commentators will point out it's likely that the phrase fervent in spirit is probably fervent with the Holy Spirit. And as for Luke, as for the rest of the early church, it's unthinkable that someone would have the Holy Spirit apart from saving faith in Jesus. But in this one critical area, in his understanding about baptism, Apollos was behind the times. He only knew of John the Baptist's baptism of repentance, which was a preparation for the Messiah under the Old Covenant. He didn't know about that great new covenant sign that Jesus had given his followers to be baptized now in his name as a sign of our union with Jesus in his death and resurrection made possible by the Holy Spirit through faith. You can imagine Priscilla and Aquila sitting there in the Jewish synagogue listening to Apollos for the first time. Here is this young, winsome man who's just arrived from Alexandria. And on the Sabbath, he stands up to speak. And suddenly, as Apollos really gets to hitting his stride, as he's full of passionate and eloquent wisdom coming forth, and everyone in the room is hanging on his words, suddenly, to Priscilla and Aquila's surprise, he starts talking about Jesus. And they sort of look at each other across the synagogue floor with that look in their eyes that says, oh my goodness, can you believe it? This guy's actually a Christian. Praise God. You know, this would have been like a newly hired sort of hotshot, full tenured professor, the one who packs out the lecture halls, the one that everyone's talking about coming to campus. And suddenly you discover after his first few days in town that he's actually a believer in Christ. Well, Priscilla and Aquila are pretty excited sitting there in the synagogue. He seems to be teaching everything about Jesus accurately. But then, as Apollos gets to the end of his stirring message, there's something missing. There's nothing about baptism in Jesus' name. And Priscilla and Aquila think to themselves, well, that's kind of weird. Well, let's see what he says next week. Maybe he's just sort of getting us ready. But the next week comes, and again, nothing. Now, you might be thinking, well, come on, what's the big deal? 
If he gets Jesus right, who cares about something like baptism, right? Well, the reality is that to be a believer in Jesus without being baptized is kind of like being married without wearing a wedding ring. Now, I know that not every culture has the practice of wearing wedding rings, but in those that do, it would be really odd to be married and not to wear one, right? It'd be odd to not have that public, visible sign that you now belong to another. That very visible, tangible seal that you've been united to someone else for life in an unbreakable bond. And friends, that's exactly what baptism says. It's the public, visible sign and seal that marks you off from the rest of the world and says that now you belong to another, that you're a member of his body for life, forever. And so everyone can see. Because you see, friends, in Jesus, something new has come. A new family created by the Holy Spirit through faith and publicly identified by baptism in Jesus' name. A whole new community is sprouting up in the midst of the old that exists to glorify God and to serve Him in the new way of the Spirit. A community where the unrighteous are welcome through faith in Jesus. A community where young and old and male and female and Jew and Gentile and slave and free all find their place at the table of grace. You see, to be baptized in Jesus' name is an utterly radical thing. It's a way to say that your whole identity now is wrapped up in Christ. Paul will actually say in the letter to Galatians, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have actually put on Christ. Your whole self is now wrapped up into him. So you see, when Apollos preached Jesus accurately, but missed the part about baptism, he was actually missing a really important thing. And he needed someone to teach him. Yes, even Apollos, the rock star preacher from Alexandria, when it came to getting the full picture of what Jesus had accomplished, even he needed someone to teach him. And here's a really great thing that we see in this paragraph. Is that he was teachable. He was actually humble and teachable. He didn't let his natural gifts, his eloquence and intelligence or his, or his theological training puff him up with pride. No, it seems that Apollos, even if he had his wires crossed about baptism, it seems that he actually really understood the gospel. That we're saved by grace. And that no matter how brilliant our minds or how impressive our skills, that before the cross, we're all equals. That we're sinners saved by sheer grace. After all, who is it that instructs Apollos, this wonder kid from this famous city? Who is it that instructs him? None other than Priscilla and Aquila, a couple of tent makers from the marketplace. You see, beneath the cross, friends, that class distinction 
and the pride that might have kept Apollos from being taught. (laughs) Not just by a couple of tent makers, but also by a woman. Something rarely heard of in that culture. And the fear that might have kept Priscilla and Aquila from pulling him aside. After all, who are we to correct him, right? You see, all those things beneath the cross are torn down. And the proud are made humble. And the humble are made bold. Two points of application and then we'll move on. First, friends, are you teachable? There are a lot of Apollos types here at Trinity. Bright, gifted, young. But none of that will do you any good in the kingdom without humility. Apollos goes on in verses 27 and 28 to have a very fruitful ministry in Corinth. It's pretty exciting. But none of that would have been the case had Apollos not been humble enough to be taught by Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus. Intellectual or spiritual pride would have made a shipwreck of his faith. So maybe this morning you need to repent of a lack of a teachable spirit. Ask God to soften your heart so that you might listen to others and receive their correction and instruction for your own good. After all, friends, the only real all-star in the church is Jesus. That's the big idea of Acts, if we were to sum up the book. Jesus is building his church, and nothing will stop it. Paul will later write about his and Apollos' ministry in Corinth. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. God's not lucky to have us, but he's willing to use us if we humble ourselves before him. Second point of application, Priscilla and Aquila. Man, aren't they great? This is the kind of figure in the Bible that you want to name a whole ministry training strategy after, right? That's a joke. That's what we're doing here at Trinity. We've named a whole ministry training strategy after Priscilla and Aquila. And if you haven't been going to Matt's class, go. Look at this couple. In in particular, here's what I want us to notice about Priscilla and Aquila here. Look at how they go about correcting Apollos. Look at how they do it. There is a lesson for us. Notice what they don't do. They don't grandstand him before everyone else. And they don't shame him in front of the synagogue and make a scene. And they don't embarrass him by pointing out his shortcomings in public or even in front of his other friends. No. They take him aside privately. The NIV even translates it, they invited him into their home. Maybe they fed him a meal. They loved him. They encouraged him. No doubt they had been praying a lot for him. And then, in that context of love and affirmation and of brotherly and sisterly fellowship, then they explain the way of God more clearly to him. So friends, if you notice something in your brother or sister that perhaps isn't quite right, maybe it's a behavior that needs to be changed or or a truth they don't seem to understand, this is how we should do it. This is how we should speak the truth in love, with much prayer, much patience, taking them aside privately, affirming your care for them, and then speaking clearly. Not with pride or with superiority, but just pointing out the way of God more accurately. 
So in this paragraph, we see that God uses Priscilla and Aquila to bring Apollos into a deeper knowledge of the newness of the kingdom that is broken into the world through Jesus. And Apollos' faulty understanding of baptism is brought up to date. And because of his teachability and Priscilla and Aquila's tactful and loving instruction, the kingdom advances. And that brings us to the second part of our text. With the inbreaking of God's new day in Christ, not only do the most intelligent have something they need to learn, but even the most religious have something they must receive. We see this in chapter 19, verses 1 through 7. Paul finally arrives in Ephesus. You'll remember way back in chapter 16 that God had actually directed him another way. But now finally he gets to come through and land in this great city. And when he arrives in Ephesus, he meets 12 or so men that at first glance seem to be disciples. But as Paul gets to know them, he begins to realize that something's not quite right. They look like disciples on the outside, but they don't seem to have the substance on the inside. Now, we can't say for sure what Paul noticed in them or didn't notice in them that prompted his line of questioning in verses 2 and 3. Luke just doesn't say But let's speculate. Maybe it was something in their beliefs, right? Maybe Paul began to realize through what they were saying in conversation with them that they were missing some pretty important parts of the Christian message. Or maybe it was something in their behavior, some of their actions. Maybe they were still clinging pretty tightly to the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. Or maybe there was some sin that was going unchecked in their midst. But maybe if it wasn't an issue of belief or behavior, maybe still... It was something in their, in their mood. Maybe they lacked the joy and peace that comes with knowing the utter and complete forgiveness of sins in Christ. Maybe their prayers showed no signs of that vital intimacy that comes from knowing that in Christ you're an adopted child of the Father with unhindered access to Him. Maybe they had no sense of the thrill and the passion of the mission to make Christ known. Whatever it was, they had a certain appearance of being disciples, but no real substance. So Paul asks, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we've not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. That seems strange to Paul. And he follows up. Well, into what then were you baptized? And they replied, into John's baptism. And then you can almost see the light bulb go off over Paul's head as he thinks to himself, oh, now I get it. Somehow, someway, these 12 or so men had heard John the Baptist's message. They had heard the message to get ready for the Messiah to come. The message to repent and to turn back to God. And the message to get baptized as a sign of that repentance. They had heard the message and they believed it. But they hadn't heard the good news that John's message had actually now been fulfilled. That the Messiah had come. And that his name is Jesus. Paul explains all this in verse 4, no doubt a sort of truncated account from Luke. And then we find that these men hear, they believe, 
They're baptized in the name of Jesus. And while Paul is praying for them, the Holy Spirit demonstrates his presence in their lives in a powerful and visible way. They start speaking in tongues and prophesying right there on the spot. Which that actually happens a few times in Acts, actually. Someone sort of becoming a Christian and then immediately speaking in tongues and prophesying. There's the day of Pentecost, of course, when Jesus pours out the Holy Spirit on the church, when the Spirit's new covenant ministry begins once and for all. Happens then. But after that, it only seems to happen at really important points in the progress of the gospel, like when the Samaritans first believed, or when the Gentiles first believed. So here it seems that in God's mercy, it seems that God wanted to give these 12 new believers in Ephesus a special, undeniable sign that they were now a part of Jesus' one worldwide spirit-filled family, the church. This is certainly not the normal thing that happens upon conversion, but here in Ephesus, it does. But you know, Luke's point here isn't really about the miraculous gifts that sort of displayed and gave evidence to their reception of the Spirit through faith in Jesus. So we shouldn't get too distracted about that. Rather, you see what this text presents us with are 12 or so seemingly earnest men who on the surface were devout and serious about religious things. They had a good lineage. They could claim even to have been baptized with John the Baptist's baptism. That's pretty legit. And who knows, maybe they had actually been with John at the Jordan and early on had made their way to Ephesus from Judea. That's not actually that implausible. And you know, this group of 12 or so, they probably formed their own sort of quasi-subgroup in the local synagogue that in addition to worship on, on, on the Sabbath, they probably met regularly in their homes for prayer and fasting and, and study of the Scriptures through the week. You see, friends, these 12 or so seeming disciples were good, religious, earnest, devout men. But for all that, they had no substance. They were all, each one of them, lost. In preparing, I was reminded of the story of John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement and one of the great preachers of the evangelical renewal movement in the 18th century. You see, John Wesley's father was a minister. So Wesley grew up in the church, hearing the message of Christ preached. And he went to college at Oxford and studied theology and pastoral ministry. And he was ordained as a priest and served in his father's church as a pastor. And after a year or so, he returned to Oxford. And while there, he led a small student club that some of the other students mockingly called the Holy Club. Because they would meet daily to pray for hours and study the scriptures and encourage one another to pursue a devout, moral Christian life. And then in 1735, Wesley even became a missionary to the New World, to Georgia. And after two years, he returned to England. But he didn't return in the manner that we would think for someone with that sort of great religious resume. He came back to England feeling like a total failure. Though Wesley had done everything 
religiously speaking, someone could do, he realized in that moment that he didn't have the substance of real spiritual life. And it wasn't until May 24th, actually, 1738, exactly 277 years ago today, at a Moravian meeting in Aldersgate Street, London, wasn't until that day that things changed for Wesley. They were sitting in a room and someone was reading out loud Martin Luther's preface to the Epistle of the Romans. And as he sat there hearing about the free, utterly free grace of God in Christ, through his own words he said, I felt my heart strangely warmed. And he would look back on that moment as his genuine conversion and his life was never the same, and England was never the same, and the United States was never the same, and some people would argue that the whole modern era in some sense was shaped in profound ways by this one man and his radical conversion to Christ. Friends, how about us? How about you? Do you see yourself in these 12 men from Ephesus? Do you see yourself in the story of John Wesley? Maybe you've grown up in the church. Or if not, maybe you've tried to live a really good life. Maybe on the outside people would casually say, oh yeah, he's a Christian, she's a Christian, or or, she's a good person, he's a good person. But friend, don't you see, no amount of external religion or religious works, no amount of that, no matter how diligently pursued, will give you new life with God, will bring you into Jesus' new kingdom. You can have all that and still be lost. You see, just like you can't give yourself physical life, you can't give yourself spiritual life. And this morning, maybe you realize that you've been running on the treadmill of duty and religion, and you realize that it's just not working. New life with God is not something we can ever earn or merit. We can only receive it. And that receiving involves two things. We see them here in our passage, actually. Repentance and faith. That is, we need to abandon our trust in what we can do ourselves. And we need to turn and trust personally the one who is completely sufficient and perfect. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's how John the Baptist described Jesus. You see, Jesus is the only one who can give you spiritual substance because he's the only one who died to take away the penalty of your sin and the only one who rose again to give you resurrection life through his Spirit. When you look at your life, do you see only external religion? If if that's you, then turn and trust in him and cast your life upon him. Now maybe as you look at your life, you're pretty sure you are a Christian. But maybe you don't see much evidence of the Holy Spirit's work. And you might be asking, how do I get that, that, that spark to become a growing fire again? 
How can I see more of the Holy Spirit's vital work in my life? And the answer actually is really the same. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold him. And as the cross of Christ fills your gaze, and as you worship Jesus crucified and risen, and as you obey him and submit to him in trust, as you turn from sins and from your selfishness daily, as you seek him in prayer and confession, as you put Jesus more and more in the center of your life, not as a sort of thing you have to do, but as a person with whom you commune, you'll find that the Holy Spirit's work starts to burn brighter and hotter. Friends, this is the sort of church our text is calling us to be. A church that's living in the fullness of what Jesus has done and walking in the newness of his kingdom. Some of us, like Apollos, may need some correction. So don't let intellectual pride get in the way of this new thing that God is doing. And some of us, like these 12 men, may actually need genuine conversion. Friend, don't let religious or self-righteous pride get in the way of entering into the fullness of what God gives you in Christ. Instead, be glad that the new day has dawned and that you can actually put away your old, outdated life and step into his kingdom where even the most intelligent have to learn and even the most religious have to receive, but where he pours out the Spirit on all who come. Friends, let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we pause before your word this morning, we want to confess ways in which our hearts have been cold to the warmth of your love and grace. And we pray that you would pour out your spirit afresh on us. And make the glory of the work that you've done for us more real and shine more brightly in our lives. Father, some of us this morning are perhaps realizing that like these 12 men or like John Wesley, that there's all surface and no substance. Father, that their relationship with Jesus is just an idea and not a vital reality. God, would you open up their hearts and their minds to place their trust in Jesus and to walk with him personally in repentance and faith. And Lord, would you fill us as a church as we remember Pentecost so many years ago. We thank you for the gift of your spirit that he is in our midst making us holy, that he is in our midst equipping us for ministry, that he is in our midst causing us to be one in you, Jesus, and most of all, that he is in our midst making much of you, Lord, making much of your person and work and glorious reign. Oh God, draw our hearts out to you more and more until one day we step into the fullness of your kingdom. 
where you will be all in all. Amen.